A philanthropic and generous billionaire and his wife murdered in their palatial home. A city left reeling. This is Dark Crime Diaries, your true crime podcast. A quick disclaimer before we proceed, this episode discusses themes of murder that listeners may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. On episode three of Dark Crime Diaries, we will be discussing the mysterious murder of Canadian billionaire Barry and Honey Sherman in 2017. According to reports, they were worth anywhere from $5 billion to $10 billion, and he was considered the 15th richest person in Canada. The couple was found dead from ligature mark compressions in the basement pool area of their home on Old Colony Road in Toronto's North York neighborhood on December 15, 2017. Their bodies posed like the sculptures found in their basement. The double homicide remains unsolved. So who exactly were Barry and Honey Sherman? Well, Barry Sherman was the founder and chairman of the board of generic drug giant Apotex. Mm -hmm. He was married to his wife, Honey Sherman, for 47 years, and they had four children, Lauren, Jonathan, Alex, and Kaylin. As a couple, they were opposites, Mm -hmm. meaning that Barry was an introvert and he had no interest in small talk, whereas Honey, on the other hand, she was very extroverted and she was described as vivacious with a big laugh. Mm -hmm. Honey was born in an Austrian displaced persons camp and she was a child of Holocaust survivors. That's pretty, wow, that's pretty interesting. Isn't it? Tell me about it. While Barry's I mean, you know, Barry's a businessman and he was mainly concerned with the growth of his business and the success and everything. While Honey paid attention to the home front, she organized everything from family vacations to holiday dinners. She was the yin to her husband's yang. She seamlessly forged alliances with powerful people in the nonprofit sector with her charm and determination. You can see what type of person she is. Yeah, I can see that interesting balance as well, right? Because you would, it's necessary. I feel like when you're in that sort of relationship, if someone is an introvert and the other person's an like extrovert, yeah. you get that, you get, you need, you know, the extroverted side to sort of give the introvert, the personality, you know what I mean? Exactly, yeah, to yeah. get that balance because yeah. you can't have one person that's always quiet and, you know, reserved mm. and then you have that person, you need to have that person that goes out there and make the connections absolutely. and, you know, yeah. that's how you build your community. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, in the, months leading, in the months leading up to their murder, mm. she spent a lot of time, honey, that is, she spent a lot of time focusing on the construction of their new house. Mm-hmm. It was going to be like a 16,000 foot square foot brick and mortar home with a pool. It had retractable skylight and a central swimming pool. Anyway, that just means that they she had a lot of new people around her from architects, construction workers. She had um, relatives all around her. So mm. she met this new people in a yeah. in the span of time. Yeah. So on December 13, um, Honey and Barry left for their home separately. Um, she left at 6 p.m. and he left um, at 8.45. Um, Honey arrived home first and then followed by Barry. Now, it's believed that this was the last time that they left the house. Mm-hmm. Now, fast forward to December 15th. 
the realtor arrives to give a tour of the palatial home to prospective buyers because um like you said earlier you know new people were coming to their house at the time that they were live they were living at old colony road with the intention of building um a new um with the intention of creating a new home somewhere else so naturally yeah. they want to sell what they have right now right of course so mm-hmm. that's why the realtor came to the house mm-hmm. but when the realtor arrived there were already two people in the house the housekeeper who came weekly and a woman who comes to care for their plants um uh, once in a while yeah now barry and honey's cars were they were parked outside but she was under the realtor was under the impression that they were not home either mm-hmm. they were not home or they were still sleeping she yeah. didn't really think much about it, but I think she also made a note about that, you know? Okay. Um, the prospective buyers arrive, and the realtor, you know, she begins a tour. <clears throat> they made their way around the house, eventually reaching the lower part of the house where their indoor lap pool was. Now, take note, this is the main selling feature of of the house, of any house, in my opinion. You know, if you have an yeah. indoor lap pool, that would definitely boost up the price especially if you're selling to people of that um yeah kind of money exactly mm-hmm. for sure mm-hmm. so um at that particular point when she noticed um you know she opened the door to the pool house <clears throat> um she she discovered their bodies but she didn't really understand what she was looking at hmm. so she kept on with the tour now most people might find that a bit weird because you know you just saw something you saw the body, uh, like according to her, she saw the lifeless bodies of the couple and they were fully dressed in a semi-seated position with belts fastened around their necks and tied to a low railing by the indoor swimming pool. Oh no. Yeah, I know. And in, when I first saw that part, I was like, okay, personally, my first reaction would be to either yell and be like, yo, this tour is over. I'm calling the cops. But... I can also see why she continued, you know, with the tour. It's professional. Um, but I really, seeing that, I wouldn't. Yeah. I would really be like, I'm sorry, we have to end this tour now because, yeah. you know, this and so-and-so happened. You don't necessarily have to show them the bodies, but you can mm. say so-and-so, and I have to call the police now. Absolutely. And, you know? Yeah. Now, it's just weird. Yeah. It, I mean, yeah, <laughs> for sure. And what personally, this is what I would call extreme case of professionalism. Yeah. Um, she tells the buyers that the pool area is off limits. Um, in time, the prospective buyers did leave the tour. And uh, just to confirm what she had seen, she's, the realtor sent the housekeeper into the pool room to actually check and double, you know, to confirm what she was actually seeing. Now, when she returns, she was pale, telling the realtor to call the police. The realtor did call the police, but get this. Mm-hmm. After an hour and a half had elapsed. Wow. Yeah. Why? I honestly don't know. That's a long time. What were they doing in that time? I honestly, well, from what we know, um, what we do know is that instead of calling the police, she made a phone call to Honey's sister, Mary. Mm-hmm. Now, speculations surrounding why she made that phone call to Mary was addressed in the book, The Billionaire Murders by Kevin Donovan. Donovan yeah. said that Mary got the phone call from the realtor, and um, after she got that phone call, she made a, another call to Sherman's children. Okay. And I can see she probably wanted the kids to know first. Okay. Without, you know, them finding out from, let's say, the media, without them getting the information from Twitter. Yeah. So I can see that part, right? 
But she could also have called the police and then called mm. the children and people close to them as well. Exactly. I mean, we'll just never know at that point what was going through her mind. I can get, I can, I can understand that shock, right? Yeah. Yeah. True. When you're in shock, you, you sometimes you're just an autopilot doing the only the thing that comes to your head. True. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, according to officers, there were no signs of forced entry into the home. An investigation showed that a window was left open in a basement room that was being painted to air the room out. Hmm. There was another door leading outside from the basement that was also left open when police arrived at the scene. Now, speculations are that the perpetrator had intimate knowledge of the home's layout, which was why they were able to enter and exit undetected. I see. It's it's kind of also strange that a home like that wouldn't have like cameras or... mm, yeah yeah now we'll probably get to, we'll get to that part you know when we um give you a 360 um understanding or a 360 view and perspective of who barry is you might understand why he was hesitant or why they were hesitant to have security cameras in their home okay i yeah. see that mm-hmm. well let's see what investigators found initial investigations followed Following the discovery of the couple was, in one word, shoddy. Mm-hmm. You know how it is. Police always, I don't know. In cases like this, you find that police always not, they're not on their A game. I would say that. Yeah. Sometimes. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Donovan says a lot of people went, a lot of things went wrong in the investigation, especially in the first 48 hours. He said the police worked and focused on the theory that the deaths were a murder-suicide. Documents show that the police were only considering Honey as the victim of the murder in the first six weeks of the investigation. Mm -hmm. Their belief was that Barry killed Honey and then himself. Wow, that's that's interesting. Mm -hmm. Okay, but carry on. Donovan told Your Morning, the police decided it was murder-suicide and then they go down this tunnel. That's bad for investigations and bad for investigators. You have to look at all suspects and all possible suspects in the first 48 hours. Mm -hmm. He also stated that investigators waited months to collect DNA and fingerprints from people who had been in the home in a bid to rule them out as suspects. On top of that, key people in Sherman's life were not interviewed until weeks after the murders. Video from security cameras in the neighborhood were also not viewed for more than a month. Mm, Unhappy with the way the investigation was unfolding, Surefam Inc., the Sherman family's private holding company, in the days following the killings, hired Toronto lawyer Brian Greenspan to assemble a team of former Toronto police officers, led by retired Toronto homicide officer Tom Klatt, to run a private parallel investigation to the official police probe. Mm. I can see why they would do that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, this meant that there were two autopsies with conflicting results. The first autopsy collected by pathologists with about seven years experience found that Barry's death was likely suicide because Sherman's hyoid, which is a tiny neck bone long believed to be a key determinant in murder by murder by strangulation. Well, his hyoid did not snap. Mm-hmm. Now, in the second autopsy conducted by a private pathologist, most likely hired by the family, they came to the conclusion that it was a double murder. Mm -hmm. According to previous research by the pathologist, the hired, in most cases, doesn't always snap during strangulations. 
and in this case, Barry and Honey's hire remained intact. He theorized that it was impossible for Barry to have committed suicide in the position he was found. Additionally, markings on the couple's wrists show that they had been bound at some point. Findings from the second ruling prompted a change from murder-suicide to double murder. In late January 2018 and in 2019, the private investigation was halted with no reason. That just seems so strange to me. Hmm, interesting. Okay, so I would see why, you know, there would be no need, you know, for the private investigation to keep going because now they have found that, you know, the second autopsy does prove that it was a double homicide. Mm -hmm. So with that information now, I feel like the private investigators have sort of done their job. They will now be providing this information to the police force to actually get them to work on the case. But the police force wasn't trustworthy in the first place, so I would <sighs> rely more on the private investigators than the police force. I'd be like, can you go on and see what evidence you can collect to... Yeah. I mean, theoretically, that's what we would think, right? But yeah. if we look at it objectively, private investigators have limited, you know... True. They have limited resources. They have limited claims and everything. Most of mm. the information is held by police officers, right? True. So they won't be able to do much. I feel like what they did was pretty awesome. The yeah. fact that they were able to get a second opinion for an, for the autopsy, you know? Yeah, second um, ruling, ruling. So who did it? Who was responsible for it? What are the theories that are going on out there? Ooh, well, this is where we're about to paint a picture of who Barry was. Mm-hmm. Number one, the biggest theory, or one of the theories, is it could be Big Farmer. Mm-hmm. Now, um, according to Kevin Donovan, a top Canadian investigative journalist and the author of the book that we mentioned earlier, The Billionaire Murders, Barry, while predominantly known as a generous guy with a heart of um, philanthropy, he was also described as a workaholic, risk taker, and a disruptor over the duration of his 50-year career. Mm-hmm. On top of that, he was once famously described as Canada's most active litigant. He filed lawsuits against the likes of Pfizer and Merck and Merck and Co. to overturn patent protections for their medicine. Um, he also he even filed lawsuits against government regulators who made decisions he disagreed with. I'm assuming you're kind of getting a picture of who he is right now. Yeah. Well, basically, this meant that he had no problems using the court to get what he wanted. Some even go as far as calling him unethical when it came to business dealings. In fact, late physician and pharmaceutical entrepreneur Morton Shulman went as far as calling him, and I quote, the only person I have ever met with no redeeming features whatsoever. Oh, no. Yeah. It is his litigious nature that made others less than enthusiastic about him. Interestingly, as politicians paid tribute to him at his funeral, his company was locked in a legal battle with their governments. Now, from my perspective, it meant that he might have stepped on powerful people and um, he was well aware of this. Okay, so at some point two decades ago, um, Barry told author Jeffrey Robinson in the 2001 book Prescription Games money ego and power inside the pharmaceutical industry about how he could potentially be a target for murder he said and i quote for a thousand bucks paid to the right person you can probably get someone killed perhaps i'm surprised that hasn't happened Hmm. now you might is this strange well well 
in a way right in a way (laughs) yeah but i'm sure he also knew that the way he was perceived by people on top of this he was a billionaire operating in one of the most ruthless mob-like and insidious industries out there the pharmaceutical industry so that means he knew he was well aware that he was offending lots of people probably just didn't i mean if i look at it objectively he was doing he, he was essentially doing the things that most of these big pharma companies do to other people as well, True. right? And True. besides, he owned Apotex, which is a generic drug-making company. Mm-hmm. So in order to get the patent and the rights to create cheaper version of the drugs that, you know, these big pharma companies are hoarding or, you know, price gouging, so to speak, um, it's only right that he would... He had to be... Involved the courts, right? Yeah. Yeah, and had to be a little bit litigious. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, now, um, according to an episode of the Fifth Fifth Estate show on CBC, covering this episode covered the mysterious murders of the Sherman, um, Big Pharma did not appreciate his generic drug-making company, Apotex, muscling in on their territory. What's worse was that Apotex was coming out victorious in many court cases filed against these companies. To them... He was a threat. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. In the episode, Jeffrey Robinson alludes to the fact that Big Farmer was out to get him. Some hired private investigators to sabotage him, others going as far as trying to plant something on him, example, child pornography and a kilo of cocaine, just to get him out of the game. Now, it would seem that Sherman was aware of the plot to compromise him because he mentioned this to his cousin, Carrie Winter, and he said, you know they're trying to set me up. Um, others even went as far as planting spies in Apotex in attempts to get dirt on Sherman. Barry reportedly told his cousin that they are out to get him, with some going as far as hiring private investigators to sabotage him. Mm. Again, this doesn't mean that Apotex didn't fight dirty. I mean, Apotex senior executive, an, an Apotex senior executive had an affair with a woman in rival company and obviously they ended up with trade secrets so take with take from that what you will so it's tit for tat basically Basically, yeah Yeah. it's 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 a dirty game it is dirty industry yeah say Mm -hmm. yeah so the second theory is his family obviously Mm -hmm. now let's look at how barry this pharmaceutical giant had his family life and how he grew up Mm -hmm. well barry lost his father when he was nine years old okay he was smart and he got good grades at, he, he got into university at 16. Mm-hmm. he studied engineering at the university of toronto and got a graduate degree from mit that's massachusetts institute of technology oh, okay he began learning about the generic drug business from his uncle louise winter a biochemist who owned a company called empire labs which was a generic drug distributor Unfortunately, his uncle and his aunt passed away, leaving behind four young sons, Jeffrey, Paul, Dana, and Carrie. Just to show you how shrewd and business-minded Sherman was, at the age of 22, while enrolled at MIT, Sherman is said to have told the executors of the estate that he wanted to take over as Empire's general manager for two months in exchange for $3,000, a car, and the right of first refusal on any sale of the company. He demanded an answer within a 24-hour time frame. Hmm. The trustees turned down the offer, but Sherman did not give up. In fact, two years later, after graduating from MIT, 
He was at it again, trying to gain control of his uncle's company. But this time, he was with a friend, Joel Ulster, and a former offer, with a formal offer of $450,000. Okay. Now, what about the winter children, you may be wondering? You may be wondering what happened to them. Mm-hmm. Well, though the trustees were willing to sell the business to Sherman and his partner, they also wanted protections in place to ensure that the winter's four sons would be taken care of. That makes sense. Now, Sherman would only agree to a written option that indicated his cousins would work for Empire when they turned 21 and they would be able to buy a buy up to 5% each, which a total share of 20% of the shares at the age of 23, as long as Sherman still owned the business. Hmm, interesting. If, however, he sold it, the option would be voided. Wow. Yeah, that's ruthless. That's really, right? Yeah. Interesting, okay. Apparently, when asked by a judge to be more generous, Sherman would not budge. Hmm. Unfortunately, the agreement protecting the Winters' sons did not survive. According to an in-depth report on Barry Sherman by McLean's, a 1969 share swap initiated by Sherman gave control of Empire to his, large, to his largest customers. And two years after that, the shares were sold for close to $2 million to ICM, a big publicly traded company. All in all, the Winters' sons were officially cut off. Yeah, that's got to hurt, man. Yeah. Naturally, they didn't take this line down. They fought back, waging a bitter $1 billion lawsuit against Sherman to be able to get a bit of Sherman's pharmaceutical fortune. Mm -hmm. You see, at the time, they didn't know about the long-lost option agreement to protect their financial interests. Now, as adults, they believe they deserve the agreed-upon 20% cut. They believe that without their father... There would be no appetites. Yeah, I kind of do as well. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like they deserve something. Yeah. But then again, if you look at it from a business perspective, it's like, well, it's a business, right? We're relying on conscience and morality to guide mm. us, but this is just a purely business thing. Yeah, but at the same time, they're right in saying that without their dad or without yeah. their parents, there'll be no architects. That's fair. That's a very fair... That's true. Yeah. Mm. But Sherman, of course, did not agree. He called the suit extortion, refusing to settle. He fought back against his cousin, even going as far as demanding that, get this, they should return the millions of dollars, approximately $8 million that he loaned them, especially Kerry Winter, after they were reunited in the 80s. I mean, if you looked at it objectively, that sounds pretty brutal. But then again, we don't know what the family dynamic is and if he had other valid reasons to not acquiesce to their request. Still, it's only fair that we try to give a rounded perspective. It is important to note that Kerry Winter has a history of drug addiction and has already spent years of his adult life entangled in his feud. At a cross-examination in May, seven months before their murders, Sherman did allude to the fact that he did everything to help them. And it would seem that an Ontario judge on September 15, 2017, three months to the day before the murder, sided with Sherman. 
The judge dismissed the suit by the cousins, describing it as an abuse of process and calling the cousins', cousins claims wishful thinking and beyond fanciful. To add salt to the wound, the cousins were ordered to pay $300,000 of Sherman's legal costs. Yo. Wow. That's a lot of money. Mm. Sherman was not happy with the legal cost amount and he wanted more in the reported sum of 984, 813, 70 and 73 cents. Lord have mercy. Wow. That's just greedy to think. To me, it seems greedy, especially if you are worth billions. Man, I don't know. That's 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 kind of a low blow. I yeah. Mean, but I again, yeah. we don't know the family dynamics. Exactly. Could it be that one of the cousins did it? There's always that possibility. One of the Winters' sons, Carrie Winter candidly told CBC's The Fifth Estate that he had fantasized about, and I quote, slitting his throat and rolling his head down the parking lot. As dark. Mm-hmm. He also went on to accuse Barry of asking him to arrange Honey's murder. What? This is unlikely because according to investigations, he failed a polygraph test when the question of if Barry wanted Honey dead was posed to him. Hmm. Okay. Speaking to McLean's, Carrie is, is, is insistent that he had nothing to do with the murders. He's quoted as saying, I admit I have utter disdain and hatred for Barry Sherman. He wronged me. He didn't honor my father. He didn't honor the option. He pulled a sleaze move. He stopped visiting me. He lied to me. He betrayed me. I have every reason to hate this man, but I had nothing to do with their demise. Yo, wow. Hmm. Honestly, and the third theory that we have is that it could be one of the many people that he sued. Uh, it would it would be difficult to try and even go through the exhaustive list of people that he sued. Hmm. Um, so the three theories are Big Farmer, his family, or one of the people, one of the many people that he, you know, leveled lawsuits against. Yeah. From this, who do you think did it? You know, honestly, I don't want to think this way, but I am leaning to more towards the family. Same, same. I was watching um, a video of um, an ex-police officer who is now um, a university professor, I believe, and he did say that the way that the murder was done showed that it was personal as opposed to professional. There was nothing professional about it. That was what he said. Mm -hmm. um, I should have mentioned. I should actually get his name but he did say it's more personal and the motive behind it was money i want to also add that i feel like the motive as well is not just money but the motive is also revenge Revenge, yeah yeah because if it's money who's the next person to get the money then the person who's supposed to get the money would be four of his kids so that means that we're throwing yeah. them into the limelight and throwing them into the list of suspects yeah you know what i mean that's true do they investigate his kids too that's also that could be possible uh, you know i don't know i feel like they might have mentioned something about one of his sons jonathan mm -hmm. but they wouldn't there isn't that much detail about it but i don't think they're uh, actively looking at the kids as suspect and you know this is all just speculation you yeah. know, but honestly, looking at it with the research that we've done into the kind of person that Barry was, 
um, oof, it's very hard. Yeah, but I, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but I, I do feel some. I do feel like it's the family because what he did to them is very personal and um, yeah. emotions run wild. Yeah. And for the killer to know, it seems like the killer knew the inside of their house yeah. and you know what they would be doing and at what time because. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's actually true. Another thing that someone said, they're like, well, we can't also look at it from that way. They're like, while the front door was, it was a bit weird that, you know, um, the security code for the door was, I mean, was not activated. Mm-hmm. Um, they did say that they were open, you know, they would open the door for anyone. They were pretty cool like that, you know, yeah. as a couple. Um, yeah, but I can see it. I can definitely see it as a family thing. Yeah, maybe they also left the door open because the real estate agent was coming by. I don't know. But that was like nighttime, though, that they were going home. You wouldn't take a chance, right? And leave your door open overnight. And that's why, you know, that's another question that people were asking. They're like, why in the world didn't he have security in the house? Mm -hmm. But then if you look at it, you know how we were saying about Big Pharma, right? If you are dealing with Big Pharma, you know for sure that they will use any and everything against you. And one of the main ways to do that is through technology. Yeah, but at the same time, if you're dealing with Big Pharma, one of them, you you need to be, you need to have high security around you, which is, a camera for instance just in case something happened to you yeah so there's evidence left behind yeah i don't know i don't know it's interesting it's an interesting case i really hope that they do well and what's actually what we should mention is that um there have been they have found a person of interest as of 2020 actually um in what can be seen as a glimmer of hope um, police indicated that the person of interest has been identified in the murders of the couple. The person has merely been identified and not arrested. And at this time, no further details have been made available. Okay. You know, this is awesome in my book because it doesn't, the character of the man isn't necessarily in question. Mm-hmm. You know, it is about who committed this heinous crime. Yeah. Yeah. And also, I'm suspicious of the police in the first place. I feel like maybe they were accomplices if they didn't do the things they were meant to do. So if, for instance, it's, uh, it's, it's, it could be Big Farmer too, and mm. they paid the investigators to. Oh, Lord. I don't know. But you know what someone pointed out? They're like, there's a, pro- there's a possibility that the police were you know they were so focused on murder suicide i don't know why they were so focused on murder suicide Mm. but let's take note that it was also around this time that another high profile serial killing case was happening in canada um, which we will be discussing in our next podcast um the bruce MacArthur story so i feel like they were you know relegating their resources to deal with that particular issue I see. But then again, it just points back to that was shoddy police work. Yes. You know, you didn't, like, you know, the author did say, Donovan, that the first 48 hours are critical. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it was the right decision to look at the crime scene and go, yeah, mm, murder, suicide, you know? Yeah. Like, where was the thinking coming from? Like, where, where did you infer that murder suicide yeah maybe it's the way the murder was done it's the way they sell the bodies but they should have anyway in my opinion i think they should have taken 
DNA samples, looked at camera footage all around the neighborhood and mm. before they concluded. Yeah, that's true. That's another reason why I can see why you're going, hmm, maybe someone. Mm. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> it's definitely one of those situations that uh, we're keeping our eyes um, mm. open, you know, for. Um, there for, is a $10 million reward mm-hmm. for if you know anything. Yeah. Your family is offering a $10 million reward for anyone with information about the murder and the murders. Yep. So anyone out there with information is being asked to call 905-546-3843. That's 905-546-3843. Or alternatively, call Crime Stoppers anonymously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I hope everything gets solved with yeah. every murder. You, that's the hope. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it, it would suck if you, as a child, you don't want something you don't want your parents murder to go unsolved right you would want all the resources out there to find out who was responsible for this particular for murder basically and bring them to justice indeed anyway thank you guys for joining us on this episode of dark crime diaries this was episode three covering the mysterious double murders of barry and honey sherman do check out and follow our Instagram page, Dark Crime Diaries underscore. Now, as always, stay safe. Until next time.